With that said, Matthew chapter 16, if you'll turn there, Matthew chapter 16, I'm going to begin reading in verse 13 as we consider the, continue sorry, this series on missions that we've been doing, um, something unusual for us. So we've been working through Hebrews. We'll be back to the book of Hebrews in September, but until then, we're working through this series on missions. And um, to today's passage that we're going to look at is Matthew 16. I'm going to start reading in verse 13. So look with me at Matthew 16, starting in verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Let me pray. Father, we ask, knowing that this is your word, the word of the Lord that your spirit would illumine our minds so that we would understand your word, so that we would hear what the spirit is saying to the churches. We are thankful that your spirit has superintended the writing of the gospel of Matthew at the hand of Matthew for the sake of not only the church at the time in which he wrote it, but for the church in all generations. We know it is here, Lord, that you speak to us as your church. We pray that we would appreciate properly, apprehend, give thanks for, rejoice in what it is that your son is saying here about the church that he is building, about his mission to build that church. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a few years ago, I was listening to a, a sermon by a fairly well-placed missiologist. If you know what a missiologist is, it's someone whose expertise is world missions. They study the history of missions. They look at the sociology of missions. They look at missions biblically. They, they look at, a, if they're doing their job, they look at a lot of these aspects. And I was listening to him speak, and he told the story of the conversion of a Hindu in India. A Brahmin Hindu, in fact, and if you're not familiar with um, Hinduism and Indian culture, the Brahmin Hindu is, the, is at the top of essentially the caste system, and the castes don't mix much. So this high caste Hindu became a Christian, and the only local church available to join was a church of low caste untouchables. The kind of people with whom a high caste Hindu would never associate. But that was the only Christian church for him to join. As a result of his decision to join that local church of untouchables, this new believer was cut off from his family and friends. He considered what Jesus said in Luke 14. That if you're not willing to hate your father and mother, your brother and sister, yes, even your own life, you cannot be my disciples. He counted the cost and he was willing to pay it. And so he lost relationships over this. This missiologist, after he told this story, spoke of this and then went on to say this. Was this really necessary? He went on to ask this. Does a non-Christian have to come into Western Christianity to come to Christ? Must Buddhists, Hindus, and Muslims become Christians in order to belong to Christ? 
Do they have to be incorporated into church organizations that are utterly alien to their religious traditions? Do they have to call themselves Christians? Do they have to adopt Christian customs and rites which are, which are necessarily Western? This is all a direct quote. I played it back several times and wrote it down. Further, the missiologist went on to state this. Millions are worshiping Jesus in India, but they are not being baptized because they don't want to join the Western fold. They would have to leave their Hindu world. Millions of Indians are following Jesus, but have not taken baptism and committed cultural suicide and entered a Western alien fold. As I was listening, um, I was stunned. So stunned that I played it back multiple times and wrote down his statements exactly. He was contending that baptism and membership in a local church are Western ideas. Someone probably needs to tell that to John the Baptist, who lived in the ancient Near East. Or Paul, who in Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12 talks about members of the body. He said this, that, that they should avoid, Hindus, Buddhists, Muslims should avoid these Western ideas of baptism and membership in the local church so they do not commit cultural suicide. They should not participate in Christian ordinances and public gathering with other Christians because they might be cut off from their families and friends. Is this guy serious? Yes. In fact, he is serious. I don't tell you his name because you may have heard of him. He is a very well-placed, important missiologist. This ideology he's teaching is pervasive now in mission circles. You can find a species of it in the popular perspectives course. Read through the manual, Perspectives on Christian World Missions, and you will find arguments for this. It's at the heart of what some call insider movements. Insider movements have an entire C scale, C1 through C5 or 6, which is referencing contextualization. How much, if you're a Muslim, for example, do you have to become a Christian to be a Christian? And can you still worship um, if, you know, with your Islamic family and friends? Can you still read the Quran? Can you still call Muhammad a, a true prophet? And many of these missiologists say, yes, in fact, you can. You never need to leave Islam, and you ought never to call yourself a Christian. I even see this in many circles among American pastors who love, in a different way, to talk about disciple-making, but who are generally skeptical of organized churches. At the heart of this ideology is some sense that visible and organized churches with defined authority structures and practices are unbiblical, unhelpful, and actually a deterrent or detriment to true Christianity. There's an assumed bias against institutions, organizations, and authority that simmers below the surface of all of this. Assumptions about the church in these circles are reductionistic. In other words, they have reduced the church to merely a kind of abstract and unorganized group of followers of Jesus everywhere on the earth. The tendency is to contend that organized churches are just a Western notion, and organized rites in those churches, like baptism and the Lord's Supper, are just Western rites. You hear this in the way many people speak today, even around us, though, don't you? In a, in a less-in-your-face way, but a similar kind of thing. Here's, here's the kind of thing you hear. See, I don't participate in an organized church because I'm closest to God on the golf course. Or, or, or at the beach. Or when my kids are playing soccer. I've, I've seen some of you. You're furthest from God when your kids are playing soccer. But... <laughs> or, or when I have coffee with my friends. Or when I'm alone with my Bible. But is that what the Bible teaches about how God works in and among his people? Does the Bible teach us that Jesus' purpose 
was to save a bunch of individuals or even groups who are off on their own determining how they do church in whatever way they deem best in their cultural moment. Does the Bible tell us anything more about the church? Further, should we pit making disciples against planting churches? Or are these two notions, making disciples and church planting, entirely separate notions, or are they necessarily related? When Jesus commanded the apostles to make disciples in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples among all nations. When he said that, did he have church planting in mind? My proposition to you is that Jesus' mission is clear, and it is not just about getting Christ followers around the earth who arrange themselves however they see fit. Jesus' mission is to build his church. And he means both the universal invisible church, in other words, that group of believers around the world, and the visibly organized local church. Jesus was building both a living organism of those who trust him around the earth and a local organization or assembly or congregation of Christians who worship together and live on mission together. Incidentally, that's what the word church means, the assembly of God's people. In other words, when Jesus gave the Great Commission in Matthew 20, 18 through 20 and said, go and make disciples, he had Matthew 16, 18 in mind. I will build my church. Now, so why a sermon on the church and a series on missions? Because you cannot even know if you're fulfilling the mission if you do not know what the mission is. And I'm contending that disciple-making among the unreached peoples of the world requires church planting, that the two cannot be separated, that the church is the end or the goal of the work of Christ. He is the builder of a church. Ephesians 5, remember this, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the what? Church, giving his very life for it. He died for the church. He's building his church. The father lovingly sent the son for the church. We hear this in Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17. As Jesus says, I came for the people you gave to me. The son graciously came to purchase the church with his own blood. The Holy Spirit was sent by the father and the son to indwell and gather together the church. Redeeming the church is the mission of Christ. Gathering the church is the reason for which the Holy Spirit was sent and the reason for which we are then sent. So in order to demonstrate this, I want to look at four aspects of the nature of the church and then draw out four implications. So that's what we're doing this morning. As we look at Matthew 16, we're going to look at four aspects of the nature of the church, and then I'm going to draw out four quick implications of this to missions. Here's the first aspect of the nature of the church. The first one is this. The church is publicly confessional. Did you hear that? The first aspect of the nature of the church I'm getting at is that the church is publicly confessional. Look at Matthew 16 and verse 13. Matthew 16 and verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now he's speaking largely of those crowds who are following around as the disciples have been interacting with them. Who are people saying that the Son of Man is? And incidentally, I think he's using the Son of Man here in reference to the Danielic Son of Man in Daniel chapter 7. We see that particularly as we read this passage on down through the end of chapter 16 and verse 28. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And I think that brackets this whole section to some degree. But he's asking, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And it's a reference to himself. We know that grammatically as we follow the argument along. And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others 
Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Now, mind you, in other words, what they're saying is some say that he, the, that, that you're one of these prophets of the Old Testament. By the way, for them, one of the prophets of the Bible. That's all they had was the Old Testament. That was their Bible. You're one of the biblical prophets. Maybe you're John the Baptist even. He said to them, verse 15, and this is an interesting thing, to them, he's speaking to all the apostles here, the 12, he said to them, but who do you say that I am? See, Jesus is asking the apostles who do people say he is, but he's really most concerned with who they say he is. That, that word you there in the Greek in Matthew 15, he said to them, but who do you is emphatic in Greek. It's actually repetitive. It reads like, who do you, you say that I am? In other words, it's a way of saying, who do you? I mean you, my disciples. Who do you say I am? Who do you? I'm specifically talking to you. Who do you say I am? By the way, folks, this is an important question for all of us, isn't it? It doesn't matter, ultimately, who the historic church says Jesus is or who the crowds outside of here say Jesus is. The question is, who do you say he is? The members of the church confess the same thing that Peter's about to confess. Look at verse 16. Simon Peter replied, You, by the way, here he's being also emphatic, similarly emphatic, saying you twice. You are the Christ. Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. It's something like saying you and you alone are the Christ, the son of the living God. You are the Christ. In other words, you are the Messiah. You understand Christ is a title. It isn't his last name. Nobody called him Mr. Christ or anything like that. It's a title. He is the Christ, the Messiah. That's the Greek word, Christos, for that Hebrew word for Messiah. You are the Messiah promised in the Old Testament. You are the seed of the woman promised in Genesis 3.15. You are the son of Abraham promised in Genesis 12 and 15 and 17 and 22. You are the son of David, promised in 2 Samuel 7, 13 and 14. You are the promised Savior King, the one whom we've been waiting for. That's who you are. That's why Matthew starts his gospel with the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, and then gives you a long genealogy showing you that Jesus is the Messiah that's been talked about through all, throughout all the Old Testament and for whom we've been waiting. And then Matthew goes on to tell you that Jesus is not only that Messiah, the son of Abraham, the son of David, but Matthew goes on in chapter 1 to tell you that Jesus is going to be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now look at Peter's next part of his, argument, his statement. You are the Christ. Now look, the son of the living God. You are more than the seed of the woman, the son of Abraham and David. More than the messianic king. You're also the eternal son of God. You are divine. You are God. This is a remarkable confession. Think about all the theology and Bible packed into that one phrase. Peter has confessed rightly who Jesus is. And the church is confessional in the same way. We are the church who believes. We believe. But please take note. Faith and spirituality and religion are all empty concepts if the faith we profess is not making the good confession. In other words, if our faith is not in the Christ, the Son of the living God, then it is useless faith. It's useless. Lots of people have faith, folks, sincere faith. The men who flew the planes into the Twin Towers had sincere faith. They had sincere faith 
in the wrong God and the wrong gospel and the wrong book. But they didn't lack faith. Sadly, it wasn't saving faith in Christ. If our faith is not in the Christ, the Son of the living God, then it is useless faith. It is not saving faith. That's why Jesus will say in John 17, 3, that this is eternal life, to know you, to know God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. We must know the Father through the Son and by the Holy Spirit if we're to make the good confession. Now note the commendation Jesus gives to Peter's confession. Look at verse 17. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, or Simon, son of John. Blessed are you, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Blessed are you. You've confessed the good thing. You're blessed because there's no way you knew this on your own. This was revealed to you by my Father who is in heaven, not by flesh and blood, not by man, not by yourself, but by God who's in heaven. He has given you a revelation of the truth, and you are now confessing the truth. Now look at the stark contrast between that. Look down at verse 22. And Peter took Jesus. That's him as Jesus. Jesus says, I'm going to go suffer and die, right? And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Now, by the way, you know, he's going to go on to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Um, whenever you say something like, no, Lord, that's an oxymoron. You understand how that is? He's going to rebuke the Lord. But he, Jesus, turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. This is direct contrast with what's been just been said. And it's one of the things I probably appreciate most about Peter. Peter is the guy who in one scene says the most glorious truths about Christ and in the next is saying the most stupid, foolish thing he can say. And some of us probably empathize with him at that point. But look at the contrast. What is the difference between how Jesus addresses Peter in verse 17 when he says, blessed are you, and then in verse 23 when he says, get behind me, Satan? The distinction is Peter's confession of faith and the source of that confession coming from God versus his confession in verse 22 coming from flesh and blood. His confession of faith is a difference between what Jesus says about him in verse 17 and verse 23. And Peter's confession is a public confession. This is a visible and public act. Peter is not relishing his faith privately in his heart. He is publicly declaring his faith in Christ. That's why Paul will come after that kind of thing in Romans 10, 9 and 10. Paul's point isn't that you have to do two things, believe something in your heart, and then confess that thing with your mouth. His point is that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So if that's what your heart believes, that's what your mouth will confess. This is precisely why we're to make disciples by the means of baptizing them. Go, therefore, and make disciples among all nations. First means of getting that done, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Baptism is where personal faith goes public. That's not all that baptism is, but baptism is not less than personal faith gone public. Look at Acts chapter 2 and verse 38. These men, Peter has preached the the sermon at Pentecost. And these men at Israel are cut to the heart. And they ask Peter and the apostles, brothers, what shall we do in verse 37? In other words, the Holy Spirit has convicted them about sin and righteousness and judgment, as Jesus promised in John 16, 7 and following. And this is what Peter says. And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you In the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive 
the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Repent and be baptized. Now listen, baptism is not itself saving. Christ saves through faith. And baptism is public identification with Christ. Faith in Christ is also not private. Thus the two are always seen together. I believe in Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God, and so I am baptized in him. I trust in the Father's love for me, purchased in the purchased grace of the Son, if you will, and in the effectual assistance of the Holy Spirit, and so I publicly profess faith in the Son as I am baptized in the triune name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. See, the church is a publicly confessional body. And second, the church, this is the first mark, if you will, or the first aspect of the nature of the church is public and confessional. And secondly, here's our second major point today, the church is Catholic and apostolic. You say, uh-oh, Catholic. Okay. Um, I mean Catholic in the original sense of the term, not the sense that's been adopted somewhat post-Reformation. Catholic meaning Universal. The church is universal, Catholic. That's what we say when we say the Nicene Creed and say that we, we believe in the holy apostolic Catholic church. We don't mean the, the papacy in Rome. We mean the universal church. We believe that Christ is saving people in every tribe and tongue and nation around the world. They all have the same Lord, the same Father, the same Spirit, the same baptism. Ephesians 4, 4 through 6. The church is universal or Catholic and apostolic. What do I mean by that? Look at Matthew 16, 16 through 18. Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, or Simon, son of John. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father, who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now with verse 18, we really come to one of the most um, historically controversial texts in Christian history. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. What does Jesus mean here? Who is the rock upon whom the church is built? Now, there are a variety of answers that come down through history, through various pastors and scholars. Some will say that the rock upon whom the church is built points back to Matthew 7, when Jesus says to build your house on the rock, referring to himself, And they argue that Jesus is the rock upon whom the church is built. Some have argued that. Some have pointed to the intentional pun that Jesus is using. Jesus likes to use puns in the Greek language. Um, We don't pick them up as well in English. But he likes to use puns. And so some say this, this pun tells us that Peter is the rock. What's the pun? You are, I tell you, you are Peter in the Greek, Petros. And on this Petra... I will build my, or rock, I will build my church. So the masculine word for rock and a feminine word for rock. So they say, Peter's the rock. This is the position now, officially, of the Roman Catholic Church. Though there are Protestants who've held to this position, they just don't take it where the Roman Catholic Church takes it. They don't say, because Peter is the rock, therefore Peter moved to Rome at some point, became the bishop of Rome, and established a, term, a, a permanent Petrine apostolic succession in which whoever is the bishop of Rome following him is um, the pope. And so we go from one pope to another. That's a rather recent development with this text. By recent, I mean largely post-Reformation development with this text um, as far as pushing it that far. There are Roman Catholics who held that before the Reformation, don't get me wrong, but as strongly as they hold it now. There are still Protestants who will say that, though. Not he moved to Rome and became a bishop, and now there's a papacy. But just the text points to Peter. Some 
scholars point to Peter's confession, and they say that the true confession of Christ is the rock. So Christ confe- or, excuse me, Peter's confession of Christ is the rock. As a, an historical aside, Rome often accuses Protestants of inventing the idea that Peter's confession is the rock. However, Chrysostom, a great hero of the faith among both Roman Catholics and Protestants, argued the same thing nearly 1,100 years before the Protestant Re- Reformation even came around. Chrysostom says the rock is Peter's confession of Christ. Now, I think the pun intends us to see Peter as at least in some way related to the rock. Also, I think the order of the passage from confession of the truth regarding Jesus to being commended for receiving this revelation from the Father is related to this concept of the rock upon which Jesus builds his church. Further, I think that Peter is clearly representing the whole of the apostles in what he says, not just himself. Look at verse 15. Jesus said to them, Who do you, that you is plural, you apostles, who do you say I am? And then Peter replies, look down at verse 20 now. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Thus the other disciples or apostles were also confessing him to be the Christ, not just Peter. Incidentally, Peter is often found to be a representative of the apostles or the rest of the disciples. We see it in Matthew 15, 15. We see it in Matthew 19, 27. I can point on and on where, where Peter is often speaking as the representative on behalf of all the apostles. Thus, the confession of Peter is clearly being confessed by the other apostles. And to take it a step further, when Peter confesses the truth as revealed by God, he is called blessed. And then this pun is used with regard to him. In contrast, when Peter speaks the lie according to the mind of man, he is called Satan. Please don't miss that. When Peter is confessing the truth, he's the rock upon whom I build the church. When Peter is confessing the lie, he's Satan. Same guy. Further, We see Peter as the representative of the apostles as he preached the gospel where? When you open up the book of Acts, who's the one preaching? Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches in Jerusalem. Further, Peter preaches in all Judea. Peter goes to Samaria and preaches there. And Peter preaches to the Gentiles. And finally, Peter and the apostles are called the foundation of the church. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in Ephesians 2.20. So Peter, as representative of the apostles, is preaching the truth concerning Jesus Christ, and inasmuch as the apostles are doing that by the power of God, they are laying the foundation of which Christ Jesus is the cornerstone. And we have that foundation in what we call the New Testament. The deposit the apostles leave us in the New Testament is the true confession of Christ and is the foundation of the church. So when we say the church is Catholic and apostolic, we are saying that the church is universal and based upon the word of God in the Old Testament and New Testament. Based upon the foundation of the prophets and the apostles, Ephesians 2.20. So the church is first, publicly confessional. The church is second, Catholic and apostolic. And third, here's a third um, aspect of the nature of the church. The church is holy. The church is holy. Look at Matthew 16, 17. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. The church has come to believe the true confession of Christ by the work of the Holy Spirit. The Father sent the Holy Spirit to apply the reconciling work of the Son to us so that we might come to the Father. It is the Holy Spirit who reveals the truth to us. The Father sent him for that purpose. Listen to what Jesus says in Luke chapter 10 and verse 21. Luke says here, In that same hour, he, being Jesus, rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. Now why? Does he rejoice in the Holy Spirit? And said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is 
except the Father. So how do you come to know who the Son is? By the revelation of the Father. That's what we see happening in Matthew 16, isn't it? It's been revealed to you by my Father who's in heaven. The Father working by the Holy Spirit. That's how you come to know who the Son is. No one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. See, the Son brings us to the Father by the Holy Spirit, and the Father also brings us to the Son by the Holy Spirit. This is why Jesus said in John 6 that no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. And then in John 14, 6, Jesus says that no one can come to the Father but through the Son. Then Jesus goes on to say that the Holy Spirit is coming to indwell us, and in this way, the Father and the Son will make their home with us. So the Father, by the Spirit, reveals the Son to you, and the Son, by the Spirit, reveals the Father to you. This is a thoroughly Trinitarian work. The church is though, or are those, sorry, or is those who's, who are elect of the Father. Those blood-bought by the Son. Those indwelled by the Holy Spirit. Thus the church is holy. Did you hear that? Thus the church is holy and must continue to live consistently with that. Please hear what I'm saying. Why are you holy? Because the Holy Spirit has applied the work of Christ to you. Adopted you as sons of the Father. Redeemed you in Christ. Indwelled you. Made you new. The church, therefore, is holy. That's why the church is often, almost universally, in the New Testament, referred to as the saints. In Greek, the hagios. What is that? The holy ones. That's how we keep it. To the holy ones at Ephesus. To the holy ones at Rome. To the holy ones at Corinth. Go read the letter to Corinthians and ask yourself, why is Paul possibly calling these people the holy ones? But that's how the church is identified Now look at 1 Corinthians 5, because we're supposed to live consistently with this. 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 9. First Corinthians chapter 5. Paul is dealing with a very, um, if you will, disgusting sort of sin that's happening in the church. It's the kind of sin in Corinth that's happening where Paul says, like, even the pagans are grossed out by what you people are doing, right? And he says, um, but you're patting yourselves on the back, proud of yourselves, basically saying, we're so gracious to allow this to continue. And, and Paul's response is, there's no grace in that at all. No grace in that at all to allow it to continue. You need to deal with it. And so he goes on in verse 9. Look what he says. I wrote to you in my letter... Chapter 5, verse 9, not to associate with, this, with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of the world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. My point is that don't associate with unbelievers because you can't be on the planet and avoid associating with unbelievers. What's my point? But now I'm writing you to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual morality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. In other words, the ones that you're supposed to avoid associating with are those professing to be Christians who refuse to repent of their sins. His point here, and I don't have time to exposit all this now, his point here is not only hang out with the Christians who are sinless. That's not his point. Because there aren't any of those. His point is, only associate with Christians who are repentant people. They are consistently living in repentance. They're not consistently identified by their sin, but by their repentance. In some sense, we might say that it's true that all, of all Christians that, our, that we ought to be characterized by our repentance being far more famous than our sin. So he goes on to say, for what have I have to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. 
Now, this takes some public visibility to enforce, doesn't it? You need to know who those are who are inside the church and who those are who are outside the church. You understand you have to be united to a local church. In other words, communing with a local church in order to be excommunicated. You have to be inside a local church, visibly and known, in order to be put out of that church. It's just necessary. So I, I want to sum this up as I've talked about baptism and the Lord's Supper and confessing the faith and church discipline as undertones of all this, that we might notice something that the Protestants in the Reformation called the three marks of the church. The three marks of a true church, they said, are these. Preaching of sound doctrine or confessing true faith. The true administration of baptism and the Lord's Supper and biblical church discipline. Those three marks. It is this visible body of believers in Jesus Christ confessing the same Christian doctrine under the authority of the Old and New Testament, walking together in holiness, partaking in the sacraments or the ordinances, baptism, Lord's Supper, participating in church discipline that then sends people out on mission together. And that leads to the fourth aspect of the nature of the church. The church is sent out victoriously. Hear that? Look at Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18. I wanted to just say the church is sent. And then I thought, nope, I need to say the church is sent out victoriously. Now, I don't want you to get um, the wrong idea. I do not mean that we will personally sense an experience of victory. We may suffer and be persecuted. I'm going to get to that in a few sermons. What I mean is this, that the progress of the gospel to the nations will not be stopped. So I mean by victory. The progress of the gospel of nations will not be stopped. Look at verse 18. And I tell you, Matthew 16, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Notice what he says. He's building his church. I will build my church. Who builds Christ's church? Christ does. By the Spirit. Look what he says. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I want to make a couple of notes here. First, the Greek word for hell can also be the word for Hades. And whether he means hell or Hades, here's the point. Jesus is building his church, and what he's getting at is Satan, sin, and death cannot stop him. Can't stop him. Notice the word stop him. Because what are gates? Gates are a defensive measure. You all understand that. You don't pick up a gate and attack people with it, right? You protect yourself with a gate. So when Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, what is he saying? He's on the offense. He, Jesus, is storming the gates of hell and saving people from every tribe and tongue and nation. And the grave which could not hold him certainly cannot slow his victory. This is our confidence in missions and ministry. That's our confidence. It isn't in our talents our abilities, our strength. Our confidence in missions and ministry is that Jesus is building his church and no one can stop his work. No one. Now look what he says in Matthew 16, verse 19. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. It's him speaking to Peter. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, what are keys for? You use keys to lock and unlock doors, don't you? To open and close things. They're for locking and unlocking, opening and closing, binding and loosing. Think about chains with, with locks on them. He is giving the keys of the kingdom to the apostles here. And what is he giving them the keys to do? To open the doors of heaven and close the doors of heaven, if you will. So he's giving them to do. He, he's not talking about spiritual warfare here in the sense of binding and loosing demons. We need to, we need to ask a question. If, if someone keeps binding demons, who keeps letting them go, right? <laughs> but we do need to wrestle with this. this is not the text has anything to do with binding and loosing demons. This is about opening the doors or closing the doors of heaven. Now, the tense of the verb here is much more helpful in the Greek. He's using the perfect tense 
What does that mean? That means that there's something that's been accomplished in the past that has ongoing consequences. So what Jesus is saying maybe is better to translate this way. Whatever you bind on earth has already been bound. That's what the perfect tense would say. Has already been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth has already been loosed in heaven. It happened in the past. It's a completed past action with ongoing consequences. Thus, the apostles, in proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ in the power of the Spirit, are merely declaring what heaven has already decreed. Look at Matthew 18. This comes up again, this phrase. Matthew 18 and verse 15. If your brother, Matthew 18, verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the who? Church. That's the assembly of God's people. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Put him out of communion. Declare him to be an unbeliever. Now look what he says. Truly I say to you, verse 18, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, this is a reference to whatever you bind on earth has been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth has been loosed in heaven. And he's bringing it to the concept of church discipline. Here the church is binding someone by putting them out of the church. But the church is merely in binding that person by putting them out of the church, declaring what heaven has already decreed concerning the unrepentant. The church ultimately doesn't know the condition of that person's heart, whether they're saved or unsaved, but the church knows that they refuse to repent. And in that situation, the church puts them out and makes a declaration. Now, look at John chapter 20, because this same Greek construction is going to come up again with different words, um, largely reference to this idea of loosing. John chapter 20, Jesus appears to the apostles after his resurrection in the room. With this very powerful passage, it is the Great Commission passage in John. Jesus said to them again, verse 21, John chapter 20, verse 21. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. He'd already said peace be with you once before. Then he goes on to say this. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. That's what I mean by the church is sent. Even so I'm sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Remember, the Holy Spirit is the gift of the Father and the Son for the gathering together of the church. If, verse 23, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. By the way, also a perfect, they have been forgiven them. If you withheld, withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. It has been withheld. So the perfect tense means. Now, some Roman Catholic priests, most, almost all, will take this text to say, see, as a priest, we have the power to forgive sins and not to forgive sins. That's not what's being said here, though. The apostles forgive others in as much as they declare the gospel because they are declaring a completed past decree of heaven. In as much as they declare the gospel, they forgive. The apostles withhold forgiveness in as much as they shake the dust off their feet or excommunicate someone, etc. So when Peter preaches in Jerusalem at Pentecost in Acts 2... He was loosing, opening the door to the kingdom of heaven, forgiving the sins of others. When Paul and Barnabas shook the dust off their feet against Antioch, Pisidia in Acts 13.51, they were binding, closing the door. It is only because Christ is the head of the church, sending us in the power of the Spirit, that any of this is true. But please note this, and I think it's important we say this, We are not apostles. You've got that one straight? We'll deal with it again next week. We are not apostles. Yet this has been handed down to us because the apostles founded the church. We are then given this sacred trust in the deposit of sacred scripture as the church. 
the Holy Spirit is with us as he was with them. The Son is the head of the church today as he was with them. And the church is sending people to the ends of the earth. We see that as early as Acts 13, when the church at Antioch sent Paul and Barnabas on mission. Notice Paul had been called directly by Jesus appearing to him, and yet Paul goes out as a missionary when the church at Antioch sends him out as a missionary. Missions is not a solo project. The Lord has given organized local churches to his people, and those churches have members and elders and deacons. You can look at 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Timothy 3 for that. And together we send missionaries to reach others. We do that together. So let me give you my quick implications. There's four that are going to come at you fast. First, fulfillment of the Great Commission requires the establishment of local churches. Do you hear that? Fulfillment, first implication. Fulfillment of the Great Commission requires planting churches or the establishment of local churches. That's what we see in the whole of the New Testament. Now, under this implication, I'm going to give you 20 lines of evidence for a visibly visibly organized local church. Say 20, I'm not going to spell them all out for you. I'm going to send them in an email. I'm just going to read them to you briefly. But if you want to study them, you'll have time via email. Listen to what they are. I just want you to feel the weight of how central the visible local organized church is to the New Testament. Listen to this. First, Jesus... Jesus' own teaching anticipated a local, organized, and visible church, both in Matthew 16 and Matthew 18. I'll build my church. Tell it to the church. Second, the church at Pentecost began meeting as a local, organized, and visible church, Acts 2, 42 through 47. Third, the apostles appointed the seven, what we call the first deacons, to serve in a local, organized, and visible church, Acts 6. Fourth, the local organized and visible church of Antioch sent out its own missionaries, Acts 13. Fifth, the local organized and visible, local, uh, visible church sent Paul and Barnabas to call a church council to deal with doctrinal disputes in the early churches, Acts 15. Six, Jesus gave the gift of leaders to local organized and visible, visible churches, Ephesians 4. Seven, Paul appointed elders to lead local organized and visible churches, Acts 20, 17 and following. Eight, Paul taught two offices, elders and deacons, for local, organized, and visible churches, 1 Timothy 3. Nine, local, organized, and visible churches took offerings to help other local, organized, and visible churches, 2 Corinthians 8 through 9. Ten, local, organized, and visible churches baptized and participated in the Lord's Supper. You can see that in passages like 1 Corinthians 11. Eleven, Paul gave commands to local, visible, and organized churches about loving and providing for those who teach them in 1 Thessalonians 5, 2 Thessalonians 5, 17, Galatians 6, etc. 12, Paul commands local, gave commands to local, visible, and organized churches about how they live life together, Ephesians 4 and 5, Colossians 3 and 4, etc. 13, Paul and Peter both taught that God gave gifts to people in local, visible, and organized churches to build one another up, Ephesians 4, 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, 1 Peter 4. 14, Paul expects the local churches to keep enough of an organized membership list that they know how to care for particular widows, 1 Timothy chapter 5. 15, the author of Hebrews expects members of churches to follow their leaders, which assumes a local, visible, and organized church. You have to know who they are to follow them. Hebrews 13, 7, Hebrews 13, 17. 16, much of, most of Paul's letters were written to local, organized, visible churches with identifiable leaders. Ephesians, Colossians, Romans, Thessalonians, Galatians, etc., etc. 17, local, organized, and visible churches are exhorted to deal with false teachers in their midst. Galatians 1, 2 Corinthians 11. 18, Paul gives greetings to members, specific members of local, organized, and visible churches by name. 19, Paul, Jesus gave letters to local, organized, visible churches in Revelation with particular lists of virtues and sins for those particular seven churches, Revelation 2 through 3. And 20, Paul gave instructions for, orders, for order in worship in a local, organized church in 1 Corinthians 14. I mean, it's pretty clear that the New Testament has this in mind. We establish local churches. Second quick implication, that was long. You might say that wasn't that quick. There you go. 
Fulfillment of the Great Commission requires churches with particular biblical marks, but not with identical circumstances. Just to make this quick, here's what I want to say. The marks of the church, true preaching of the gospel, right administration of baptism and the Lord's Supper, and church discipline that that are accompanied with identifiable members and elders and deacons, those sorts of things... um, are what are essential to the nature of a church. But there are lots of circumstances around the church that are culturally contextualized that are not necessary to the nature of a church. For example, um, some churches own buildings. Some do not. That is not necessary. It's not necessary to the nature of a church to own a building. Some churches are meeting indoor in chairs with amplified sound. Some churches in some parts of the world are meeting outside with a man just preaching in open air. That is not necessary to a local church. Why does this matter in missions? Because we will hear many in the missions world confuse those issues that are essential to the nature of a church with those issues that are circumstantial. And they'll say culture allows us to override even the essential things. Here's what I mean by that. I have heard many in the missions world declare this. Organized gatherings direct teaching of the biblical text, discernible leadership, and even ordinances like baptism and the Lord's Supper are Western ideas that should not be taken to the Middle East or the East. We have gone even further as of late and said we do not want to force Western doctrines and Western confessions on Easterners. By the way, Western doctrines and Western confessions are funny because like the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, um, a guy like Athanasius and Augustine who both fought for the Trinity Um, and and the doctrine of grace, they come from North Africa. They aren't Westerners. And they come from 16, 1700 years ago. They aren't modern Westerners imposing American imperialism around the world, right? But so they go on and say, we should let these guys read the Bible for themselves and determine what right doctrine is for themselves. We should not allow missionaries to teach. The unbelievers should teach themselves and trust the Holy Spirit to correct their error. If you think I'm exaggerating on that, there's a debate online you can go watch with me debating a leading missiologist on that very point. This whole approach misunderstands the distinction between the nature, what the church is, and the circumstances, certain cultural circumstances that aren't essential to what a church is. So, yes, we don't need to go overseas and make churches in other countries look like the church in America. We don't need to do that. But the church is still Catholic and apostolic and holy. Thus, we still profess the same doctrine, the same God, the same gospel. We still are expected to baptize, participate in the Lord's Supper. We're still expected to gather, to have elders and deacons, to participate in church discipline. Those those are cross-cultural things. Third, fulfillment of the Great Commission requires the establishment of native indigenous leadership. I'm just going to state that. William Carey um, goes on to say that. If you see everywhere Paul goes, what does he do? He establishes elders that are native and indigenous to that area. They become Christians, they mature in Christ, and he raises them up as elders and deacons. And he leaves the church in their charge. The church, we need to follow suit in that. We follow suit. That takes time and effort. But we follow suit. Um, fourth, fulfillment of the Great Commission is the local church's responsibility. Now, I already said this in my fourth point on the nature of the church, but I want to reemphasize it. Churches call and send missionaries. Churches do. Local, organized, visible churches call and send missionaries. Churches call pastors and elders and deacons. I am not self-appointed. Ultimately, I am called by the elders, deacons, and members of this church. Our missionaries are the same. Thus, the church ought to take responsibility for making sure missions candidates are properly tested, trained, and supported. And the church ought to pray together that the Lord would raise up from our numbers, from our number, more workers for the harvest. For the harvest is ripe and the workers are few. Let me pray. Father, we ask that your son would be exalted in our church by the working of your Holy Spirit, that we would together 
as the body of Christ. Understand the privilege it is to to be saved by your son, to be gathered into this local assembly of believers, to be indwelled by your spirit, to be able to call you our father. May we be pleased to be a church that is publicly confessing the truth, these doctrines we hold together. May we understand that this church is universal. It's all across the earth of believers who are dwelled by the Holy Spirit, who are redeemed by the Son, who are called by you, our Father. May we understand that this church is apostolic, that we follow the the foundation laid by them, the apostles and the prophets and the Old and New Testaments. May we understand that we're holy and live consistently with that. And may we understand that we are sent out victoriously to make Christ known where he is not. And we pray that as a church, we would be faithful to send, to support, to pray, to see Christ made known in every tribe and tongue and nation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.